Thank you guys so much for being here today. Welcome to Means of Creation, a show where we are deep diving into the passion economy and the future of work and exploring new platforms that help people to turn what they love to do into their source of income. I'm your host, Lee Jin, along with Nathan Bashez, and I'm really excited to be having this conversation today with our guest, Casey Newton, who has been one of the top journalists in Silicon Valley for over a decade. And for the last seven plus years, he was at The Verge, where he led Silicon Valley coverage and wrote a daily newsletter about social networks and democracy called The Interface. And that newsletter was read by over 20,000 subscribers and covered topics around big tech, content moderation, and the impacts of social media on society. And here on the show, we're big fans of his work and his story, we think, is the perfect example of the passion economy playing out right now in real life. Late last month, Casey announced that he was leaving The Verge to start his own media company and subscription email newsletter called Platformer, which is a publication at the intersection of big tech and democracy. And so today I'm excited to chat with him about the biggest changes in his life since going independent, high level trends in media and journalism towards readers supported journalism. We'll also talk about community, mentorship, and making the paid newsletter world more diverse and more. And so without further ado, hi, Casey. Welcome to the show, and thank you so much for being here today. Hi, thanks for having me, you two. Uh, This is going to be a fun chat. Yes, for sure. So I want to kick it off by talking a little bit about platforms, which I think is a very apt topic given your writing. You've covered platforms like Facebook and Twitter for a long time and sort of delved into the risks that they pose to both their participants and to society as a whole. And you've also experienced firsthand the impacts that platforms have had on the news business in terms of traffic and ads revenue dependency. And now you've gone independent and you've launched your own email newsletter on Substack, which itself is a technology platform. And in a way, your entire livelihood is now somewhat dependent on just a single platform. I'm curious around what made you comfortable with making this shift? And is that even the right way to think about it where Substack is a technology platform with the risks that platforms entail? So it's a great question. And I think the first thing I would say is that all of our lives are dependent on platforms, right? Like you are dependent on Google or Facebook or Amazon or Twitter in some way. Uh, Cash Hill, like his moto, wrote this incredible piece where she just tried to stop using all four of those platforms at the same time. She had to get developers involved just to like rewire her phone so it didn't touch AWS. Like if you think you're living a platform independent life, you are kidding yourself, right? And so one of the reasons why I wanted to start Platformer was to just create a publication that was devoted to that exact thing. We are all hugely dependent on platforms. They're affecting our lives as individuals. They're affecting us at a society level. And we need a a publication that is just showing up uh, at least four days a week to talk about that in those terms and to investigate it with an open mind, but to be skeptical, to speak truth to power, and to try to push these platforms to be the best possible versions of themselves. So that's really the idea of the heart of platformer. You know, in terms of why Substack and not another thing, you know, Substack made it easy for a journalist like me to take a risk like this in a couple of super important ways. One, super turnkey, you show up, you basically pick a color and upload a logo and you have your new publication. I actually wish there were a lot more customization options, but it's hard to argue with just the ease of use there, right? But then they offered to do a couple of other things that made it really easy on me. One is they have a legal defender program. So Mm -hmm. if I 
run afoul of some litigious billionaire. They've said that they would step up and, and support my legal costs, which, as you know, can be enormous. And they also offered to help me figure out healthcare, which as somebody who has never had to do that before was hugely appealing. So for a combination of all of those factors, it, it helped me make this move really fast at a time when I was ready to move. And so now we're just going to see what happens. That's really exciting. I'm curious. So I know you've only been doing this independently now for about a couple weeks, right? But I'm, I'm curious around how... How does it feel? Like, how has your life changed since going independent? How does it feel emotionally, psychologically to be on your own? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm definitely getting that roller coaster that a lot of founders talk about where there are days when you're on top of the world and there are days when you feel much lower. Like I had thought that the day that I left The Verge was going to feel really exciting. And instead I was just like flooded with anxiety and this sense of like, is this a bad dream? Did I really walk away from like the best job in media to like inherit all of this uncertainty? And then, you know, I woke up the next morning and so many people had subscribed to Platformer, even though there was no real reason to do so yet. It was just purely an expression of goodwill that I knew I was going to be okay, at least for the next several months, just, you know, living only on Platformer revenue. So that was like shocking in the best way and has like sort of powered me through the roller coaster yet to come. You know, look, I'm still at a moment of real anxiety. My paywall is going to go up on Monday. The vast majority of my subscribers have not paid to become members. I have some real questions about how many of them are going to do that, you know, when uh, platformers stop showing up in their inbox on Monday through Thursday at 5 p.m. Pacific. But we're just going to have to see, you know, one of my good friends who also runs a, a, a sub stack as I was you know, thinking through whether I wanted to do this. And we were trying to game out every possible scenario, just looked at me and said, look, you're never going to know if it works unless you try. Totally. I'm curious what the biggest, like, what the mindset is basically, because I was on the other side of those, a lot of those conversations where, you know, as a member of the Substack team, like, you know, come on, it'll be amazing. Like, but like, I'm curious what, like, there's a lot of people who I think don't understand, like, there's a lot that you get from a traditional job in journalism that is hard to replicate uh, when you're on your own. And there's pros and cons on both sides. And I'm curious for the kind of like the stuff that people may not realize just kind of from a distance on the internet thinking, why doesn't everyone just go and do their own thing immediately? Yeah. I mean, so there's just a whole infrastructure around being a writer that is taken care of for you, right? So you are receiving a a dedicated salary, you know, every two weeks. Um, Somebody is figuring out uh, how to withhold all of the right taxes from that. You know, I mean, for most of my life as a journalist, you know, my media company would just send me a W-2 and I do my taxes myself. And like, you know, the whole thing would take five minutes. There was just no complexity there. If there is if I'm writing a sensitive story and I want a lawyer to review it, the media company does that on my behalf. If I just have a bad couple of weeks and don't really have anything interesting to report, it doesn't matter because the value that I'm bringing to the organization is considered on a much longer time horizon, right? Whereas now I'm really like, eating what I kill. And there is an expectation that I will have a lot to say, like on a regular basis. 
And then there's also a community, right? Like I love working in newsrooms. I love being around other people. I love bouncing ideas off of people. There's a shared spirit. You know, so like I would say The Verge was the most mission-driven publication I, I ever worked for. The early days is trying to get that thing off the ground and make it something real. Like I, I'll remember that for, for my whole, you know, for the rest of my life is just a, like a defining experience of my career. This is defining too, but it doesn't have that same sense of like spirit and mission right. that a lot of people are really drawn to. Right, right, right. Do you think that you'd have more people working with you on at some point to create the camaraderie? Yeah. So what I've been saying is like, I don't envision platformer ever becoming a newsroom, but I can see it becoming a Scooby gang. So like, <laughs> yeah, I love that get, vision. you know, it's like seven people get in a van and we drive around the country and we saw platform mysteries. Like that sounds really fun to me. So we got to see, you know, how, how many people subscribe and how possible that is. I love that. I'm curious around like, just personally, are there lots of journalists who are now approaching you and asking for advice around going independent and leaving their full-time journalism jobs at traditional media companies? Like, do you see that trend accelerating from your own perspective? And what advice do you give them? Are there profiles of people who you would actually dissuade from making the leap that you did? Yeah, both great questions. One, the answer is absolutely yes. Like, there's an oversimplified answer to the first question, but I'll give it anyway, because it's funny. And it's basically, everybody saw Andrew Sullivan was making $600,000 a year at Substack, and they thought, well, I could do that. And a lot of them probably could, but that was like the number that, that was heard around every newsroom in the world. And so like pretty much every journalist with over 50,000 Twitter followers, like had to take a long look at the mirror and ask themselves what they were getting out of their media company. So I am having those conversations conversations were interesting. Um, one of those journalists, you know, has told me recently that, that they're, that they're really, that they're actually going to make this move. So it is happening. It is a trend. It's real. You know, the, the secondary, much more important question is how many of these folks are going to succeed. And that's where mentoring comes in. And, you know, maybe we'll talk about that later. In terms of who I would dissuade, I think you're already starting to see this, not so much among journalists, but just among like Twitter folks generally, like particularly the the extremely online Silicon Valley crew who is just attuned to like platform shifts, you know, like entrepreneurial moments. And like all of those people have gotten wise to the fact that the Substack moment is a legitimate opportunity. And so a lot of those folks want to get in on it. And then you go to look at their offering and it is really just blogging. Maybe they have a niche, but I've read a lot of subsects that I feel like have not defined their niche at all. Something that I believe very strongly is that uh, a subsect publication should, or that that many of the most successful subsect publications will have an element of service in them. There will be utility. It will feel like it is doing a job for you, which means that part of creating it should feel tedious every day because that is what people are paying you to do. And I've spoken to a lot of folks yet that do not seem to have adopted that as religion. So look, it may turn out that they prove to be successful in other ways. You know, it seems like um, some folks are just building big communities and then the newsletter can kind of be whatever. And there will definitely be multiple paths to win here. But in terms of the people I'm just waiting, it's the people who are coming in with the broadest possible themes for a newsletter-based publication. I'm curious with some of those conversations you're having with journalists that are considering leaving, if what effect it's having on 
like the negotiations they have with their employer, my kind of like theoretical prediction or whatever would be that um, salaries are going to have to raise, right? Because if you're like, hey, look, I think I could do pretty well with my sub stack. I'm going to need a bigger raise this time around. A lot of media companies are going to say like, uh, okay, you know, or like find out ways to carve out like some sort of more incentive-based payment or profit share type thing, like just to kind of dip their toe in that direction towards the total, the total kind of like upside that you get from Substack while still having, you know, the, all the things that you, that you said have are really valuable about being a part of a larger organization. I'm curious if that's translating yet. No, it's too early, but I know media companies are thinking about it and talking about it, right? You know, a lot of the big digital media companies are built around a handful of stars. There is a certain level of concern there about, well, what is this media company if we lose all of our stars? You can actually have a pretty good media company without stars, like page view driven businesses work because, you know, you click on a link underneath the Google search box and you don't even know what you just read and like that scales to some level. But I just think it's too soon to know, right? I mean, look, I mean, th- these media companies are going to have to actually measure the impact of losing the stars first, right? I think before they go in and raise those salaries. But ultimately, there's a limit on what they can do, right? Like if Andrew Sullivan is making half a million dollars, you know, on Substack, he's, he's much more valuable to his readers than he, than he might be to almost any publication, right? Like that is an unheard of amount of money, an almost unheard of amount of money for a media company to pay out. And the way that most media companies are built, it's not to pay people half a million dollars a year. You know, there are CEOs of media companies that we all know of that are making far less than half a million dollars a year. So I just think like there's about to be a total recalibration of what a media company looks like. And that was part of what I was trying to get ahead of. Mm. What do you think that recalibration will become? Um, like fewer newsrooms, more Scooby gangs distributed by default, direct connection to an audience. So I am connected to you via an email address and a podcast feed and it's and niche, right? Like the last decade was like, let's build the biggest scaled thing imaginable. And every single website's going to post every single Game of Thrones trailer because we just need the traffic to like enable this thing to work at all. And I think in the future, it's you subscribe to the New York Times, maybe one or two other things, but then like for your job, you subscribe to this other thing that helps you do your job better because it's where the smart people talk about the thing that, that means the most to you. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's where I think like the next set of companies is, is, is going to come from. And then, you know, you can just ask to what extent will those roll up and what will be the collaborations, and et cetera. Totally. I'm curious around your thoughts around the monetization mechanism that is currently in vogue on Substack, which is that, I mean, the Substack model is to have reader supported writing and specifically monthly subscriptions or annual subscriptions, but typically monthly. And do you think that that is kind of the end all be all of monetization models that we'll see in the future? Or do you think that there's going to be even further evolution and there's types of writing that don't align well with the monthly subscription model? I mean, are, you, are we talking about like microtransactions or, or what are you thinking about that would be better or different? Yeah, so I think part of what I'm starting to see now is the monthly subscription, it creates an expectation of very consistent output. And so there is starting to be the hints of some writer creator burnout, the same way that you would have on YouTube or some other content creation platforms where they feel like once they get on the treadmill and they don't even realize they're getting on a treadmill, but they literally cannot stop writing forever. 
like they will have to write their newsletter into eternity for the rest of their lives if they wish to not piss off their subscribers. And obviously some people, I think of writing as existing on a barbell. There's people who might publish a huge, very in-depth thorough piece, maybe once or twice a year. That was my pattern at Andreessen. I published twice a year on the blog. And then there's people who publish weekly or monthly and have very consistent output, but it's not as you know thorough. It, it didn't take a hundred hours for each piece to get written. And I think the monthly subscription model maps well to that model, but not to the other case. Yeah. I mean, like... I want there to be tons of business models. I want there to be a business model that works for every writer. I think if you think you're going to make a living writing twice a year, that seems like a huge ask to me. I think that cadence is a huge part of what makes a publication work. When the writers approach the job, of course, they want to just be able to write when they want to write, like when they feel so moved. That is not a business right? That is, a, that is a, a, a dream that your heart has made. So like, I, and again, like I could be totally wrong about this, but I think that regular cadence is essential to making this thing work. And it all goes back to service and utility. I am doing a job for you, yeah. right? Like, you know, in Silicon Valley, you know, part of the way, one of the ways we gain currency is we publish our thoughts, right? And we go on, we, 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 we write our medium post. And when it gets upvoted on Hacker News and, and, and we accrue some level of status. And I understand that there are folks out there who think that they can convert that status into a media business. But, you know, having a couple good ideas a year, I just don't think is, is a media company. That's a good point. Yeah, we were having this conversation on Clubhouse a couple of weeks ago. And I had also brought up the point around investigative journalism. There's pieces that probably take months, maybe years of in-depth research, cultivating sources, doing a ton of background work, and it may or may not even result in anything. And that's a model in which I think you still need an institution to stand behind you to foot Or at least a Scooby gang. Yeah. (laughs) And, And that is another instance in which perhaps a monthly subscription model, your readers probably aren't willing to support years of research without any output. Right. So, but two things that do work there. One is in this future world, I think media companies are just going to become more comfortable with not having as many stars on the roster, but they're going to want those stars to come in and still publish with them. Right. So they get the benefit of the stars output without having to pay a big salary and healthcare. And they'll absolutely be willing to defray costs for investigative reports. Like multiple outlets have already asking me to like do this with them. So, I mean, I think you're just Mm -hmm. going to see that continue. It makes a lot of sense for everyone. For other folks, though, you can do this on the Kickstarter. There's a, a great substack called The Informant, written by Nick Martin. It's about um, hate speech, at, at, like hate movements in America. And he wanted to cover a trial that was out of state for him. And so he did a little mini Kickstarter among his readers and went on Twitter. And they were able to fund uh, a freelancer to cover this trial. And then it you know, sort of played out in his newsletter over a few weeks. And, and so I do think that there's an opportunity for writers who for, you know, either may not want to publish elsewhere uh, or feel like they can't get the attention of a major outlet to turn to their readers and say, hey, would you give me a few more bucks this month and here's what we're going to do. So that, that model could work. Interesting. I'm curious that to, to get a little more detail on like the way that it could work with people. So, so people like you who have their own independent Substack or paid subscription newsletter, but then also partnering with traditional publications to do investigative work how it i guess i'm confused because like uh it would be hard to take the time i'm guessing right to like because if you've got to publish your your normal thing you know 
Yeah, I mean, look, I, so last year I wrote a series of um, articles about the lives of content moderators in America, and I did it while writing the interface four days a week. Like, it yeah. is possible. It does mean that you work on weekends. You know, I mean, I think what a lot of people are learning as they kind of scope out this world is that it, it, it is a ton of work. It is for people who like the reporting and the writing and the editing, and then hopefully they're going to like running a business on top of all of that. But, you know, like any business is hard. Obviously, like this business feels easy by the standards of like starting a business historically to me personally, or like I'm able to, I mean, just let's talk about Stripe. How freaking amazing is Stripe? That is like the best looking consumer software I've ever seen. And it's like an enterprise software company, right? I snapped my fingers. They created an LLC for me in Delaware. I mean, like this stuff is magic, you know, but there are a lot of elements to it that are not magic and persistence remains the most underrated virtue in all of life yeah. um, you, you really have to go hard and you have to grind for a long time to get the outcome that you want uh, in most cases totally so it sounds like the way it works is basically like you can kind of slow roll some stories that are bigger stories where a lot of the work is like reaching out to people emailing like reading through a document to try and dig to find something having calls and you're kind of accumulating information and notes and then it probably gets to the point where like okay i've got it and it's a big surge of work that's maybe it's like on a saturday you're going to sit down and all right, we're going to put this thing together. And so it's totally doable in that world to like, as, as long as you're willing to, to do those calls and to spend that Saturday to also at the same time, write, you know, every day of the week or four days a week. Totally. And like, I mean, look, I did take days off when I was sort of finishing up big investigative reports. I would just tell readers the day before, hey, I'm on assignment tomorrow. You're not going to hear from me. Um, of course, in those days, I was giving them the newsletter for free. Right. But, you know, in my experience, if you really clearly define the value that you are delivering, you can build trust with people over time. I actually think trust is one of the great under-discussed subjects about starting a Substack newsletter. Yes. There are a lot of people who want to ask you for your money and not tell you when and on what schedule they are going to be delivering you any content whatsoever, right? They're relying solely on your goodwill. They don't have an ethics policy. They don't have a page that lays out their principles for coverage or their general worldview, right? And in such a world, you are going to get a lot of churn because if the newsletter just stops showing up and you think, well, what am I paying five or 10 bucks a month for, right? Now, on the other hand, if you do have an ethics policy, if you have a posting schedule, if you say, I'm going to take this much vacation in the next year and I'm going to ask for this many personal days and you tell that to everyone when they subscribe, I do think you can start to build enough goodwill with folks that you can say, hey, I'm working on something really cool. You're going to love it. You're going to hear about it first. And for that reason, you're not going to hear from me on Wednesday. That could work, right? Like particularly, yeah. like my, my newsletter is 2,500, 3,000 words a day. Usually when I take a day off, people feel relieved, right? It's like, okay, great. Yeah, you do your thing, Casey. We'll, we'll catch you next time. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to probe into that idea of trust with your audience a little bit more. So in your initial announcement post for Platformer, you wrote this really interesting paragraph that I'll, I'll just read out quickly here. You said, quote, something special happens when a publication shrinks down all the way to a single reporter's point of view. The publication feels more trustworthy. You know who the writer is, where they're coming from. It promotes expertise. The reporter is free to explore their given subject at depth, sharing what they learn in an iterative way. And because their publications are about something specific they can create real communities intimate fascinating generative communities 
specifically, I wanted to delve into that last part about communities. It sounds like you have something in the works that could be potentially very exciting. Like what, what is the role of a community for a writer in these times? And how do you envision that coming to fruition? To me, the the opportunity is to turn journalism into more of a two-way conversation. Typically, those channels have been really slow and laggy. Like, I came up in newspapers, and in newspapers, it's like you would write an article, and then some people would read it, and then, like, 10 people would send in a letter to the editor, and then they would publish one of them, and, like, that would be the Mm -hmm. feedback that you got from, from a reader. That's not awesome. You know, today, obviously, you publish something. You hear from a lot of folks on Twitter, that people, but those folks not be your, might, may not be your community. I write about a pretty defined subject area. Probably the thing that I wrote about, write about more than any other human right now is content moderation and content policy and platform governance. And so a lot of my, like, most devoted subscribers are also in that world. And they are far smarter about most of those issues than I am. And so the question is, how do I enable them to, you know, not just talk to me by replying to my newsletter, which they do all the time, but have a bit of that conversation in public, get some ideas going. I mean, one, hopefully they're going to find value in that as they meet other people who are in this community and can sort of refine their own thinking. But two, it's going to be a really powerful signal for me for like, where else should I go, right? I mean, it's like eventually you want to get to a place where the community is talking about things you haven't heard of yet and you, you can actually turn to them and draw from them and and let it guide and shape your own reporting and analysis you know candidly i don't think the tools are, are there on substack to really do that yet at, at any real scale in fact like you know one of the things i've been thinking about is I, I would love to do like kind of like a weekly thread where we discuss you know a big issue of the week but then it's like well but then i have to like send out an extra email to everyone and i already like i don't want to like feel too spammy right so it's like how can we sort of fix some of those seams? But I think if we do it, we're like, we're going to open up some really cool possibilities. Yeah. I think a, a writer that comes to mind that I think does this really well today is Lenny Richitsky, who writes Lenny's newsletter. I see him all the time on Twitter, sort of crowdsourcing content for his newsletter. And a lot of the responses from Twitter make its way into the content that he publishes. And he also runs a Slack community of his subscribers where people are consistently in discussion about both the stuff that he writes as well as other things that they come across that are pertinent to the content that he features. Yeah, I think it's brilliant. I'm interested in learning more about you know, how he and other folks are doing that. I write for so many like policy and comms teams and like an executive teams that I just can't see a lot of them joining a Slack channel and like posting Mm -hmm. under their real names about the issues of the day. So like I'm in a zone where that feels trickier, but it is something that I want to keep thinking through. Right. I I just really like the way that it sort of elevates your readers into participants and co-creators. It blurs the line between like who is the actual creator of this publication versus the readers and it's less binary. Yes. And I mean, I think that's also going to be essential to creating successful newsletters, right? Like there's, you can build up goodwill on Twitter and translate a certain amount of it into a job and that's cool. But I think what's really going to make it take off is if people feel like they're participating in something that is larger than the writer they're subscribing to. Totally. Yeah. One thing that I think is a little bit of a good middle ground for this problem of like communities might get noisy. Maybe people don't want to post publicly about things under their real name that are, you know, 
tricky to discuss is I've heard, I've heard of some creators basically creating like a 30 person private telegram type thing where it's like just a place to get some signal from, from your readers on something. Like if you're just like, Hey, I'm thinking about this, like, is that interesting? Or like, you know, people can post stuff that you're like, can react to in the newsletter could be an interesting idea. Yeah, I, I like that idea too. I'm good buddies with Gabe Rivera who runs Tech Meme and his dream forever has been to like whitelist a group of people who could post anonymously under any Tech Meme story, <laughs> um, <laughs> which, which has not uh, happened yet, but is kind of in a similar direction. Yeah, that's fascinating. And the last question that I wanted to ask you before we turn it over to the audience is, so yesterday, uh, Substack just announced a new mentorship program, which I think is called Substack Bridge, matching emerging writers with established Substack writers to help them in developing their writing careers. I think that you had something to do with the development of this mentorship program. So I would love to learn more about it from you and why is it important? Yeah, I mean, like, for me, I was never going to leave a, such a great job, like the one that I had at The Verge, unless it was about more than just, you know, I want to have a cooler, potentially more lucrative job. I, you know, I wanted to see if we could do something about the terrible loss of journalists that we have seen in this country. We lost more than 11,000 of them in this year alone, and we need to start bringing them back. They're a, a crucial player in our increasingly fragile democracy. So, you know, because I was no longer going to be in meetings and I was no longer going to have coworkers, I thought like, how can I just put myself in a bunch of really fun, positive conversations every week? And I just really loved the idea that I'd be able to mentor writers who were either thinking of leaving their jobs to start something like a Substack newsletter or who'd already done it and wanted to figure out how to take it to the next level. So I got in touch with Hamish at Substack and I was like, listen, I want to come do my thing on your platform. But one of the things that would be really cool for me is if we could like develop some sort of mentorship program and you could help me find folks who are looking to sort of, you know, take the next step on their entrepreneurial journey, whatever that might be. And Substack was so great. And they just said yes instantly. It was like, yes. There wasn't even like, let me take a day to think about it. It was just <laughs> like, yes, well, of course we would do that. And, yeah. you know, within a couple of weeks, uh, I was meeting uh, with Ellie, uh, who is now running this program. She's done a phenomenal job. And uh, it was just announced yesterday. But basically, people can apply now. The first session is going to be eight weeks. All the mentors are committing to working with their mentees at least a couple of times during that, but as often as weekly. And the hope is that we're going to sort of help people, you know, level up what they're doing, you know, but even before this started, I just started taking mentorship calls. So, you know, I, I wrote in my announcement that I wanted to do this. I uh, had one earlier this morning, actually, but it's, it's been just the, the routine highlight of my week talking to people who, you know, often have really great ideas. Uh, usually what they're suffering from is like a lack of self-confidence and, and, and they're missing answers to certain tactical questions. And so it's just really fun to kind of help them think through like, you know, how, how they could get what they want. Totally. Very cool. That's so exciting. Is it just mentorship or is there structured programming, like lectures and things like that? So right now it's, there is like kind of a, a, a loose guide, but there's not a ton of structure around it. I think they're, they kind of want to see how it goes. And then if it goes mm -hmm. really well, they'll probably build more structure around it. You know, from my perspective, a lack of structure has some benefits, right? Because it is the sort of thing where like, you know, it's America, it's quarantine. I can just sort of, you know, just click the next Zoom button and I'm having a mentorship call and there's not a lot of extra like requirements around it. But, you know, it, I'm, I, my hope is that it does grow and develops a massive infrastructure. I don't know. Yeah. Totally. I know that I said that that was my last question, but I actually have another one. 
<laughs> so in, in your initial announcement email, uh, sort of hinting at this mentorship program, you also mentioned, quote, I know that white people and white men in particular are overrepresented in the paid newsletter industry. And for reader-supported journalism to have an impact, I believe it can on the world, it needs to become much more inclusive. I love that sentiment, first of all. But I'm curious around your thinking around why that is the case today. Like, why is the paid newsletter industry, given that it's so turnkey and easy to get started, why is there this diversity issue that's developing? Yeah, I mean, I think you just have to put, like, white supremacy and sexism at the top. Like, those that those sort of a very powerful combination. And, like, I, mean, I think the combination of those two things is the main reason that newsrooms themselves were not particularly diverse. Many of them have struggled for, you know, decades with, with a lack of diversity. Um, that has created many editorial blind spots uh, within the coverage of our country and the world that are terrible. And so there's like a real cost to our democracy of not having a more inclusive group of folks who are asking hard questions and holding power to account. So, you know, when you look at who is able to reach an escape velocity to go start their own thing, it's typically people who've been able to save up at least some amount of money, right? Yes. And she's like, I spent the past year just like saving my money at the verge, you know, and, and I had enough where I felt like even if this thing is a complete disaster, like I'll be able to eat for, you know, a, a little while. Um, but a lot of folks aren't in that position because they're being paid $40,000, $50,000 a year working at a, a small newspaper, just kind of hoping to get by. You know, if they're raising a family, it becomes even harder to sort of put that money away. So, you know, in short, like the white supremacy and sexism issues have created um, like one, a smaller uh, pool of folks who, who might even consider making a move like this. And then too many folks just lack the one way to give it a shot. And I think it's like sort of in the intersection of those two things that has led us to the situation that we're in. But the good news is um, that the, the better that this model works, we are, I really do think we're going to get to a place where people can snap their fingers and create their own job. And that, if that doesn't lead to a much more diverse and inclusive set of journalists than, than we have had, um, then something will have gone terribly wrong. Okay. Right. I think the added element beyond what you mentioned, which I totally agree with, is it, it's, it's not only stemming from the supply side, the writer side, but it's also the audience side. I think if, you know, for someone who is considering making the leap into independence, they survey the people around them and they think like, are there enough people in my surroundings who I know are going to support me in this journey? This is one of my concerns about reader supported models is it's inherently unequal because not everyone comes from a community and a setting in which they have lots of friends and supporters who are willing to pay out of pocket for whatever they're creating. And the people that are going to be most successful from the get-go are going to be people who exist in social cir circles where they have a lot of people who are willing to support them just out of goodwill, out of that level of trust and affinity for them. I think one of the things that I really love about what you're doing with Platformer is the fact that there is that tier the really high price tier, the $1,000 a year tier, where you're actually giving away 10 free subscriptions to Platformer to people who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford it. Because I think inherently subscriptions versus advertising, it's a little bit more exclusionary of people yeah. who can't pay. It's a, it's a huge problem for us too. I mean, like we basically 
at the, every time we ask people to subscribe, we try and say like, and if you can't afford it for any reason, just reach out and like, we'll work it out. Mm-hmm. And it's nice to have skin in the game. Even if you're paying a dollar a month, like we don't care, like just, just anything or like, you know, we get, we've, we've done some free stuff and whatever, but I wish that that were more streamlined and like, it just feels like there's a new kind of model around this that's waiting to get kind of figured out. I, and I don't know, I don't know what it is, but it feels like a really important thing to solve. Well, I mean, yeah, I think there's a, a lot that could be done on the subscription side that would make them inclusive. I mean, Substack could enable, you know, like automatic subscriptions for .edu addresses or, you know, something like that. But, you know, Lee, that other point that you made is honestly like not something I thought of before, but I, but I think of as really powerful um, because we do want folks t- uh, to create these newsletters, even if they don't know who the community is that's going to be there to support them. And to me, the example that I think of the most is, you've just graduated from journalism school. There's no newspaper in your hometown. You're living at home and maybe you have a real strong interest in local politics. You live in a town, maybe it's got 500,000 people. Well, gosh, if you could find, you know, 5,000 people to pay you 10 bucks a month to just write like three times a week about what's going on in your town, you'd have a pretty good newspaper job, right? You'd be making about as much money as I ever made when I worked in newspapers. And so the question is, how do we identify those individuals in those communities and how do we get them there five or 10,000 subscribers that are going to make that a viable path. And I think that's one of the big unanswered questions here. Yep. Agree. Totally. All right. Should we do With that, Q&A? Let's, yes, let's open up to Q&A. So anyone who wants to ask Casey or either of us a question can raise their hand and we'll bring you up on stage where you can unmute and actually talk to us. I love this first question while people are raising their hands. If you, if you haven't been at like The Verge or Andreessen Horowitz, how can you develop a presence without, you know, being associated with a known platform? Yeah, so I mean, like one of the biggest newsletters on Substack is called Petition. It's about bankruptcy and it's written by an anonymous person. This is somebody, you know, who had zero social footprint and was able to build a really big business just by creating good content. Now, That person is writing in an industry where there are a lot of deep pockets and a lot of people with expense accounts. And so that model isn't gonna work for anyone. But if your question is, do I need to have worked for a big media company to start a Substack and succeed? The answer is no. The other great answer to this question is Ben Thompson, right? Ben Thompson, who's one of my biggest inspirations for starting a platformer. You know, this is someone who had no media experience whatsoever. If, you know, if some website would have hired him to be a a columnist, he might've done it, right? But nobody would. So he started his own thing and it worked. You know, both both those folks are really, really smart. And so you have to be really, really smart to make it work. You have to have something really interesting to say, but never just look at your Twitter following and say that number isn't high enough for this model to work for me. Totally. Also, like, I definitely did not have association with like really good platforms or whatever. And like, not like the most successful Substack writer ever, but like, it's going all right. And, you know, I think it's way more about what you produce and you become known over time. And maybe you can't, you know, make a living off it immediately, but like, it's the order of magnitude is like, you know, a year or something like that. If you're really writing good stuff consistently, it doesn't take that long for people to notice. Totally. So next, Ray has had his, his or her hand or their hand and uh, raised for a while. So I'll hit allow to talk. And I'm not sure, Ray, if you can unmute. Yeah, I was curious for all three of you, who are other great platform writers? I like Eugene Wei, but I was curious like, what your thoughts are. 
There are so many. I mean, if you know Eugene Way, then I feel like you probably know all the really obvious ones. Like Taylor Lorenz is one of my favorite writers about platforms. Matt Levine at Bloomberg doesn't often write about platforms, but when he does, it is always a must read for me. So those are two that I would throw out yeah. there. And we're having Taylor on the show next week too. Next oh, week. fantastic. Yeah, those are, those are great. I mean, I, I have to say this honestly and not just as a like uh, whatever, but like Lee writes amazing stuff oh, thank you. about platforms. <laughs> that was and every, t- every time she, she writes something, I have to read it. Oh, thanks, Nate. Uh, Nate writes really great stuff too. <laughs> Casey writes good stuff too. Okay, yeah, I didn't mean to do that. Um, but no, honestly, also, there's I like, like a first short round- list. Yeah, yeah, I also like first round, um, first round review published by First Round Capital. They they write definitely for an operator builder lens for platforms. It's really geared towards practitioners, and they do a lot of great interviews with people who are actually building startups and companies in the space. But yeah, there's there's so many. Another kind of operator focused one is Lenny Richitsky. Writes really mm-hmm. great, really practical stuff for if you're if you're on the kind of building things side. Who next? Network Capital. Hi, I'm Utkarsh, the founder of Network Capital. I recently left my job at Microsoft to basically build communities and write. I have decent MRR. I have $10,000 coming in every month just from the newsletter. I get approached from VCs every now and then. What's your advice on taking in VC money? What's the right stage, if at all? Or should I just continue just doing what I'm doing? I mean, I guess the question is like, what what would you build? You know, is there something that you could build faster if you had more money? Yeah, hire some more researchers and writers. Media companies have raised venture capital and they can be amazing businesses, but they have a really different dynamic than a tech company because you have to invest in writing. You have to support the creation of content. And I think that there are definitely some investors that would, would be interested in that kind of thing. It's a different kind of investment though, usually. And so if you have the expectation that, you know, you look at like a software tool that's being built now, that's going to be like a future of work type thing or whatever. And it's just like, or like Rome, you know, Rome just raised money on this like enormous valuation of, of $200 million when, you know, and the reason why they can do that is because it doesn't cost Rome very much to build Rome, but a lot of people will pay a lot of money. Whereas a media company, you have, you have more real costs. And I think it's typically pretty hard to, to raise money for this kind of thing. And probably not, probably not the best idea in the usual case. But Lee, I'm curious what you think, because you, you invest in companies. I think as a VC investor, obviously there there have been some big exits in media in recent times. Like it, this past week, there was just the announcement that the Morning Brew newsletter was in talks to be acquired by Business Insider for something like $75 million, I think approximately. The Skim is another example of a newsletter that has raised venture funding. So I think there are examples out there of like highly valued and not just on paper, but like real exits in this space. I think as a venture investor, these kinds of models, they don't need to be funded to such a huge scale. Like the reality is that most of these businesses are probably going to be worth at most like hundreds of millions of dollars, probably not billions or tens of billions of dollars. Speak for yourself, Lee. I'm sorry, Casey. Yeah. yeah, Casey's already running a unicorn publication over there. And so I think from a VC investor perspective, I just always think about like, how is this company ultimately going to be valued and just being really realistic with myself about return expectations. John, who's raised his hand. What's up everyone, John from Urban Tech here. I uh, just wanted to 
quickly ask, I know Casey you talked a little bit about providing utility to readers and that consistency. So I'd love to just kind of dive in a little bit more about kind of what you meant by that and get perspectives from Nate and Lee and how they're kind of thinking about that part. Thanks. Yeah, so, I, you know, I try to provide utility in a couple ways. You know, one is I just read the internet for people. Like, there's a million platform stories that come out every day. I actually read them, and I try to pull out, like, the most pertinent nuggets out of them. Uh, I try to make that as a number as often as I can, actually, because uh, I feel like that those really pop when you're reading the thing. I also organize them into a hierarchy, right? Like, I rely heavily on TechMeme. TechMeme is wonderful, but TechMeme is just a flood of things. Like, if you come to my newsletter, there is a section for governing, and there's a section for industry and they're clearly defined and if you just want to skim my newsletter it's extremely easy to do so right so that's like an element of utility I also try to help people understand perception. So that's one of the things that a sort of more analysis-driven newsletter can do that a typical news story can't. So I have a section called the ratio where I talk about things that are trending up and trending down, looking at stories that have um, a chance to affect public perception, which paying clientele is actually hugely interested in. And one of the main reasons that they're subscribing to me is they want to understand if their team won or lost today, right? So that's like a real utility element. And then there's other things that you can think about building over time, right? Like there could be a jobs board, there could be recommendations for products. You know, there's kind of a whole realm of service journalism that is just waiting to be imported into the newsletter model. And I think you're going to see folks trying a lot of interesting things around that. Alan, how's it going? Hey guys, how are you doing? I'm curious about how open you are to writing about different topics while still balancing having that focus that your readers expect. Or would you be open to like having a separate segment or just a separate newsletter completely? Um, yeah, I think that that's like one of the eternal questions is to what extent do you try to own a niche and to what extent do you try to break out of it to maybe entice some new customers? It, it's mostly accurate to say that I just write a newsletter about social networks, right? Like I put a lot of like bells and whistles around it, but the truth is I'm just trying to be the smartest journalist about social networks. That's what I write about every day, right? But I don't say that because I want the flexibility to roam. And it turns out that a lot of the issues that I write about with platform governance affect Apple and Amazon and other giant companies that we don't think of as being social networks in the traditional sense. You know, one of the best read things that I, I wrote uh, right before I left The Verge was about Coinbase, right? Uh, it, which to me was a, a story about governance. And okay, politics have been unleashed in your workplace and now the CEO wants to get them out of control and the story is all playing out on Twitter. And so it doesn't look like a traditional platformer story, but it is deeply related to the things that I'm interested in. So I'm going to go dabble there. Coinbase is not going to be a, a main player in platform, but it might be a recurring character. And I think it's good for newsletters to have recurring characters. They don't show up all the time, but once they do, you're like, oh, that's right. We did talk about that two months ago. What's going on with them? So I think it can sort of create a really interesting package over time if you think about it that way. How do you think about how people new readers versus older readers, for example, and approaching that side and not overwhelming someone who just subscribed recently, for example. Yeah, so this is one of the things that I'm most curious to, to find out. So when I would send out the interface, usually within five minutes, about 25 people would unsubscribe, right? It was like, I, you know, I put my whole heart and soul into this thing and they read it and they're just like, enough with this guy, emailing <laughs> me every day, where does he get the nerve, right? And so one of the things that I'm excited about moving to a model where I'm sending out only one free edition a week is 
I actually think it might be better for the overall health of the business to have a segment of readers who I'm just talking to once a week for whom that will be exactly the right amount that they ever want to hear from me, but they'll stick around and maybe we can develop some sort of other relationship over time. So as new people are coming in the door, hearing from me once a week, I'm hopeful that that will give them some time to acclimate to a 2,500 to 3,000 word email that is coming in that has a lot of information in it. Um, but I actually think that over the long term, I may have a better chance of converting them into paying customers. So that's the hope. Can I ask one question before we yeah. go? Yeah, yeah, no, of let's course. Do it. Nate, how should I think about bundling in the future? If, if other journalists start Substacks that are in my realm, yeah. uh, what would a bundle look like and how difficult is it to operationalize? You know, with the stuff that Substack has built, it's definitely not difficult at all to operationalize from the perspective of, is it, can you have a thing where people pay one price and they get access to multiple newsletters, but they can control their settings, their email settings individually? Like all that works great. It's awesome. The place with it on Substack that where it gets tough is if like by default, when people sign up, they get signed up for everything. And so if you've got like, we're, we've got like seven or eight things coming up, like it's like that gets unwieldy. So you need like a nice page where, you know, you can like discover things and you're like, I don't know what I want out of this. I want you to have a nice introduction to me to it. So working on some of those user flows currently is tricky, but maybe it'll get better. So that, that'll be exciting. The main tricky thing is figuring out how to allocate the revenue. And we've been working on this really hard to make sure that it's fair. Cause the most important thing for us is that creators feel good about it. And they're like, yeah, I totally get why this works. I get why the more value that I create, the more value I, I, re I receive in return. And like, they trust that we're not trying to like minimize their share or something like that. So we're trying to be as transparent as possible and as simple as possible so that it's not like functionally not transparent because there's so much complexity or whatever that it would take you like a day to like dive in and understand. But also there's sort of a trade-off between simplicity and fairness where oftentimes just the way the systems work is it's like, well, if you want to make it fair, you've got to kind of like do all these little tweaks and things to like, so anyway, we're working on that. I don't know, Lee, how do you feel like it's going so far? Yeah, I feel like it, I think that the, the bundle is working well. I think I think Casey, you should join the everything bundle, <laughs> be part of the crew. <laughs> well, the cool thing is it doesn't have to be an exclusive thing. Like you can, you could like do, you could do both, right? Like we could like strike a deal where you like license your content to us or something like that. So we're not going to pitch you live on yeah, camera. Right? <laughs> but, it's for uh, hours, but it is very interesting. Yeah, totally. Cool. Yeah. Well, well, thank you guys so much for joining us today. This was such an interesting conversation. Casey, thank you so much for being here. We really enjoyed it. And for everyone in the audience, you can find Casey at platformer.news. Go subscribe to his new publication and support him. Is there anything else you want to plug before we wrap, Casey? No, just platformer.news. And it looks like there might be a couple of questions that didn't get answered. So if you have more, just find me on Twitter at Casey Newton, and I will try to uh, see if I can answer your question. Great. There you go. Thank you Thanks so much. So much.